Okay, guys, uh, looks like we got uh, a few more have come on. So welcome those of you that uh, have worked through the technology issues and are now on. Um, thank you for your persistence. Uh, for those of you just coming on, you'll see in the Zoom group chat window uh, the notes if you want to download those. If you haven't done those already, uh, they're uploaded directly. And then there's also a link for those of you that may not be able to access the file directly. Uh, the link will take you to our website. You can download the notes there. Uh, but welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, so turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 42. That's where we're going to begin our journey today and uh, go back there. And, uh, you know, some of you about this time are getting nervous, hoping that I forgot the homework assignment that I gave you guys last week. Actually, I gave you two weeks ago, and uh, all of you were naughty students and uh, uh, didn't follow through. Well, most of you. Some of you did. So thank you, those those who did. But, um, okay, another text just went out uh, with instructions. So, uh, again, uh, check check your text. We're figuring out what's going on with Zoom, and the text gives uh, some additional information there. So, Okay, so for those of you that repented of your uh, lack of compliance on homework and you read chapter 40 to 46, I'm just curious, uh, how many read chapter 40 to 66 this week or, or made an effort to read? Okay, very good, a few of you. And uh, how many of you think you understand the servant a little more? Okay, good deal. It, it's kind of it's kind of like a detective moment, right? You know, you get to kind of work through the chapter and and figure out what this is all about. But this is uh, it, those of you that read chapter forty to sixty six, you understand this is a really big theme of the second half of the book. You'll, you'll remember the book is divided in two. Chapter one to thirty nine is the first half. Forty to sixty six is the second half. And uh, so this is a, a huge theme. So those of you that that did some study on it. What did you come up with on the uh, the identity of the servant? Would you would you figure out, Keith? It depends on the context of that particular chapter, and several of the instances of the servant. It's specifically addressed to uh, Israel, um, and specific. It says that right, and then a number of the other. Uh, References are, it would have to be to the Messiah or the Anointed One because right. of the description of his actions and, and what he's doing and, and he's going to be saving his, you know, uh, Israel. So. That's right. Yes. So it depends. Sometimes the servant is, is, uh, Israel. Sometimes the servant is the Messiah or Jesus. Well, we know it's Jesus. They didn't know that. Right. And I wanted to clarify your question if I could, uh, were you looking for us to be finding out who the servant was or who a reader in Isaiah's time would have thought the servant was? Yes. Or who we know he is. Yes, exactly. And and that's where, as, as Bible students, uh, we know our first goal is to read and understand the text as the original audience would have understood it. And we don't we don't want to... Uh, prematurely jump to what we know from the New Testament and read that back into the Old Testament because often uh, that ends up muddying the interpretation in, in many ways, even though obviously there's an appropriate way to do that. Uh, so, yeah, Dave, you're, you're right. I mean, we, we first want to try to investigate it from the standpoint of the original audience, uh, and then we can sort of make a second pass and, and read it 
in the fullness of revelation as we know it in the whole Bible. So, um, yeah, certainly the, the original audience would not have understood even the references to this individual and, and even calling him the Messiah. Um, we know that, and, and there probably were some astute readers that could have put two and two together, but he's not explicitly called the Messiah, at least at this point. Um, and uh, even though you're correct. So, um, so let's, let's look at how this unfolds. Okay. And uh, for those of you just joining us, welcome. And uh, I'm going to flip over to the PowerPoint here and, uh, and let's, uh, let's jump in here and do part two uh, of our study. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. Um, I can't find the notes on, it was it in the email, the church email that got sent on Friday. No, it's in the zoom window. Okay, well, it's not there. Is there a chance you could try resending it? Or you said it was somewhere else, though, didn't you? Yeah, if you go to the, the Grace Bible Church web, oh, web page. That's what it was. Okay. And then click click on Sunday School. Got it. And then click on Isaiah. Um, uh, thank the, you. The, it's under the document downloads there. Okay, cool. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so let's uh, flip this over here. And uh, all of you can see the PowerPoint now. Is that good? Great. Okay. So let me change this here so I can see all of you again. There we go. Great, great, great. Having two monitors is definitely the way to go when you do this. Okay. Okay. So um, in our in our study here, we, we've uh, we're talking about the uh, the commission and work of the servant, and this is part two, of course, in chapter 42. So so just by way of review, those of you that missed this last time, I'm going to buzz through this really fast because we're a little bit behind. But um, so last time in chapter 42, this is what we learned. We're trying to figure out who is the servant, which is a theme, especially of the second half of the book, which is chapter 40 to 66. Uh, we saw, first of all, that this there, there's over 20 references to the servant in one way or another in the book of Isaiah, 16 that are explicit with that phrase, my servant. Um, uh, Isaiah himself is called the servant in Isaiah 20. Eliakim is called the servant in Isaiah 22. David is called the servant in Isaiah 37. And then more recently, as we're getting into the second half of the book, chapter 40 to 66, uh, we see this reference to the servant as referring to Israel, chapter 41, uh, 8 to 9. And then in our chapter, uh, we, we noticed uh, something that changes, and we'll come to that in a moment. But before we do that, remember the context. At this point in the book, Israel has two dilemmas. In Isaiah's day, as Isaiah is writing chapter 40 to 66 and giving that prophecy, He's looking forward over 150 years into the future to the time of the Babylonian captivity. This is where Judah, the southern kingdom, has been judged. They've been taken off as slaves uh, to Babylon. And so Isaiah is writing preemptively to talk to that generation, the exiles, as they're in Babylon, to give them help and hope in that situation. So remembering the time frame, Israel really needs two things, don't they? They need to recognize deliverance from exile, but they also need redemption from sin because sin is what caused God's judgment that brought about the exile in the first place. And in chapter 42, remember, we've got this courtroom scene. 
where God calls witnesses, he calls the foreign nations, he calls the foreign gods to present evidence that, that there is some God, there is some deity that would surpass and supersede the Lord himself. And, uh, of course, nobody can do that because God says, only I can tell the future. And what God does in Isaiah 42 in this courtroom scene is to present evidence of what's going to happen to Judah in the future, that uh, at, at this time of exile, they're going to be in captivity, and then God will commission a Persian ruler that we later find out to be Cyrus to be the one to send uh, the people, the exiles, back to uh, the, the nation of Israel, to Jerusalem and to their land. And so no one is like the Lord, right? Now, remember, as we look in chapter 42, the first few verses, we read things like this. Behold, my servant, whom I behold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for him. So so we read that in chapter 42 and we go, okay, wow, this servant is chosen by God who delights in him, right? He's the recipient of God's spirit. He's appointed to bring justice to the nations. Uh, He is a helper who will help those who seem beyond remedy. That's the bruised reed language there. He's personally commissioned by the creator God uh, by being called in righteousness, upheld and watched over by God. Uh, the, these are these are really significant roles that this servant is going to have. And he's been given this specific mission to bring about justice. Uh, he himself, it says, will be a covenant to the people. He'll be a light to the nations, uh, to the Gentiles. He will open blind eyes. He will free prisoners from the dungeon and darkness. So, so this is a, a, a great a great servant who will do tremendous work of freeing and transforming and and bringing redemption to the nations and um so but we we know by context that the servant in chapter 41 was Israel so as we're just reading this naturally what we what the reader concludes is that this servant is the nation of Israel and then uh, uh, Isaiah goes on and talks about how God himself will assure these plans will happen and the whole earth will respond. Even Gentile towns like Kedar and Selah will rejoice in praise when this redemption of mankind comes, this freeing of the people comes. And uh, in the last few verses that we looked at last week, verses 13 to 17, we see God acting, right? God will act uh, in war, in battle. In other words, he will bring deliverance from exile and he will be, he will bring deliverance from their spiritual blindness. Remember, those are the two issues, right? They need to be physically freed from their exile, but even more, they need to be saved and forgiven from their sin that led to the exile in the first place. So in, in verses 13 to 17, we see God intervening to address both of those needs. Both the nations and, and Israel will hear and will see. So we say, great, wow, this, this great uh, redemption, this great restoration is going to happen. God's going to do it. The people are going to be saved. And we say, great, this is awesome, right? This, this is going to bring about, uh, God is going to use his nation, his people, Israel, 
to bring about this deliverance and this great freedom from sin, except there's just one little problem, as we noted last week. Look at chapter 42, verse 19. We'll pick it up from last time. Look at 19. Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord? We say, "Uh uh-oh, we've got a problem. Houston, we have a problem, right? Because the servant is blind and deaf. So we say, wait a minute, the servant is the one, according to the first few verses of Isaiah 42, who's going to bring deliverance, who's going to be a light to the nations, who's going to be a covenant to the people of Israel. And we, we come in and we say, yes, right, this is great, the whole earth praises. And then Isaiah says, but wait a minute, there's just one problem. The servant is blind and deaf. And as the reader, we go, what on earth is going on? See, Look at verse 20. You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hear. What's Isaiah saying? He's saying Israel, listen very closely. You got to get this. Israel as the servant has heard many things from the Lord, seen many things from the Lord, but they remain in disobedience, don't they? That's why they're in exile. That's why God judged them. That's why all this happened in the first place. And what that tells us, what Isaiah is saying, and listen very closely, is this. I, uh, Israel as a nation was supposed to be God's servant. That was his plan. Remember we saw that in Genesis 12 last time, that the Abrahamic covenant given by God to Abraham, that, that in Abraham and in his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? That, that's what, that's the plan. That's what's going to happen. But as we see Israel's history unfold, we come to this shocking conclusion. The nation itself is not the hope for the world. Israel as a nation is not God's instrument to ultimately redeem all of humanity because Israel, you ready? is part of the problem. They're just as blind as the Gentile nations. They're They're just as sinful as the rest of the nations. They're just as ignorant of God's plans as the rest of the nation. And Isaiah puts puts this question mark in our book today. So the, the servant is blind. Israel doesn't obey. So what do we do? Okay, look, look on your screen here. They have ears, <laughs> which hear God's decrees, but they do not hear. Okay, they have ears, which hear God's decrees, but they do not hear. So what on earth is going on? I'm glad you asked. Listen very closely. The servant of verses 1 to 7, which we assumed was the nation of Israel, because that was the context, that's what chapter 41 taught us, the servant of verses 1 to 7 who opens blind eyes cannot be the servant Israel in verse 19. Can't be the same thing, right? You everybody see that? The servant of 1 to 7 cannot be the same servant described in verse 19. You say, why? Because the blind can't lead the blind, right? The blind can't lead the blind. And so it... Isaiah, as he unfolds this, is helping us to see that the servant 
described in verses 1 to 7 cannot be the same servant identified as Israel because Israel is blind and the blind can't lead the blind. Okay, are you with me? Making sense? But see, isn't this fun? It's like it's like a detective moment. It's, it's, it's like an unfolding mystery here. Isaiah in his prophecy it is unfolding revelation little by little. And, and if you think about it, if you think about that, I mean, t- tell me if you think I'm crazy. Is, is this not the Old Testament in miniature? Is what Isaiah just told us in one chapter. This is the Old Testament story in miniature. God calls the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, to be the, 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 um, the megaphone to the world of who God is and his ways and his plans. And, and that's what Israel was supposed to be. And yet from, from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy to Joshua to Judges to Ruth to 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel to the Kings, now we're into the age of the Chronicles, into the exile. We have seen time after time after time, what? Israel is not being faithful to God's charge. They're not the light to the Gentiles. They're not the, the, the spokes nation to the world for who Yahweh is and his program. And that is why, in, as we see here, someone else must come to be the servant, to be the redeemer, to be the hope for all of humanity, including the nation of Israel. And that's why if we go back to Genesis 12, what does he say? Abraham in you, and then he clarifies later on, in your seed, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What we see as Revelation unfolds, this is the Old Testament, guys. This is the whole message right here, okay? That one person will come from the nation of Israel, and that individual will be the salvation of Israel, and he will be a light to the Gentiles. And that's what Isaiah is trying to show us here. It can't be Israel. It can't be the nation, because they're just in need of redemption as the rest of the world. Okay? The blind can't lead the blind. Okay? That's what, that, that's your, uh, <laughs> that's your takeaway for today, right? The blind can't lead the blind. Write that down. Okay. So back to the notes here. So what we've seen is is this scenario okay? And let, let me uh, let me grab my uh, my annotation electronic laser pointer here. Watch this. Uh, there we go. Okay, can you see that? Okay, great. So the servant in Isaiah starts very broad, doesn't it? It's it's this it's this broad circle that we know is just the nation of Israel, and and occasionally it might be a, a particular individual like Isaiah or uh, David, and we've seen that. But in the in the second half of the book, in chapter 40 to 66, the servant refers to Israel as a whole. You'll see that. But then what Isaiah does, now you need to watch this. What Isaiah does is he adjusts, he adjusts the zoom of his prophetic camera and he tightens up the shot on an individual. So sometimes the servant refers to Israel. Sometimes it refers to a specific individual. And the camera zooms out and back, out and back, without any warning sometimes. And so as the reader, that's what you have to distinguish. Are we talking about the individual servant? Or are we talking about Israel as the collective servant, the corporate servant? 
And that's why it's a little bit tricky to understand. You have to let the context help you determine what's actually going on. Okay, does that make sense? You with me? Nod your head. Wave at me if that makes sense. Okay, good. All right. So now let's parachute back in here. In in the book of Isaiah, the servant starts wide. Okay, the servant is the whole nation of Israel. That's what we saw in chapter 41, verses 8 to 9. So if you think about that, but the blind nation Israel can't save the nation. If, if you want one paragraph that hopefully puts in the, this perspective, here it is, okay? But the blind nation Israel can't save the nations. And that's what chapter 42, 6 to 7 says, that this servant comes and saves the whole nation. So the servant, in terms of understanding that, the idea of the servant narrows from the whole nation of Israel to an individual from Israel, that's who's described in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 42, who will save Israel and the nations. Okay, now, now watch this, okay? Let me show you a parallel. Flip over to chapter 49, verse 10. Or excuse me, chapter 49, verse 1. Chapter 49, verse 1. This individual servant that we saw in chapter 42 also shows up in chapter 49. Listen to this. Chapter 49, verse 1, listen to me, O islands, pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp, a sharp sword, and um, uh, in the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, here it is, verse 3, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said... I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with God. Okay, now, now, watch this. Watch. Are you watching? Good, good. Verse 5. But now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb, to be his servant. Now, listen to what the servant's going to do. To bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Do, do you see that? The servant is going to bring the servant Israel back to God. See, there's two servants, right? There's the servant Israel that's blind, and then there's the servant, the individual, who God commissions to bring the nation Israel back to God. That's what his role is. That's his job. And uh, it goes on to say, verse 7, what, look at verse 6. I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, this is not just a savior for Israel. Who is it? It's a savior to who? Everyone. To everyone. That's right. This is a, a light, a savior to the whole nations. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and its holy one, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, Kings will see and arise. Princes will bow down. Why? Because of the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritage, and say to those who are bound, go forth. And to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. So you get the idea. So the servant as the individual comes and he saves Israel 
and the whole nations and brings them back to their land and restores them. So uh, that is what's going on here in as, as the book of Isaiah unfolds in regard to the servant, okay? So back to your notes, back to the screen now, okay? Uh, he, he goes from the servant narrows to an individual from Israel who will save Israel and the nations. Now, how's he going to do it? Watch this. Flip the page a couple more to the right to chapter 52. To chapter 52. How will this individual the servant as an individual, how will he save Israel and how he will he bring salvation to all the nations, even beyond the nation of Israel? We'll look at chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Verse 14, He just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, he will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the, of the Lord been revealed? Now, still talking about the servant by context. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now read that in context. Why is that so important? Because the servant as an individual, listen very closely, is identifying with the servant as the nation Israel, right? Despised forsaken, right? Do you see the connection there? The servant as an individual is identifying with the nation Israel in terms of their their situation. A man of sorrows, verse 3, acquainted with grief, like one with men whom hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Now, how is the servant as the individual going to bring salvation and deliverance not just to the nation of Israel, but to all nations. How is he going to do it? Verse 4 tells us, and you know where I'm going, don't you? Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, yet, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, And by his scourging, we are healed. Look down to verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days as a good, as as the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Now here it is. Here's the bottom line. By his knowledge, the righteous one, what's it say? My servant, there it is, will justify the many. How can he do that? Because he will bear their iniquities. Okay? Did you see that? You see what happens? The servant 
as the individual is able to save Israel and deliver them and offer redemption to all the nations. How? By coming and offering himself as a substitute sacrifice to save the nations from their sin. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but do you see how that develops in Isaiah? Do you see how the Abrahamic covenant in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed? Do you see how that gets that gets fulfilled progressively as we come to Isaiah and we realize who this individual is who will save the people from their sins. He is the servant, not the whole nation of Israel, but a servant who comes from the nation, an individual who comes from the family of Abraham and offers himself to redeem Israel. Now, according to Isaiah, we don't know who this guy is yet, do we? We don't know who that individual is. We learned a lot more about him, and we will as the the book of Isaiah unfolds. Of course, as we put on our New Testament spectacles and our our, uh, complete canon uh, uh, thinking, we understand that this is none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, that's talked about here. But it's neat how it unfolds, isn't it? Isn't it kind of neat how it just kind of progressively unfolds like that? Okay, back to the notes here. Back to the notes, and uh, let's jump back in here, okay? So... Finish the paragraph now on your notes there. Who will save Israel and the nations by offering himself? <laughs> and here's what, here, here's one more thing. And, and we don't want to ruin the, the end of the book here, of course. But did you know that the individual servant is going to give a prophecy about himself by the time we're done? Before we're done with the, the book of Isaiah, we're going to hear from the servant himself, not just about him, but the servant is going to speak, and I have got to give you a preview of that. I'm sorry, I cannot restrain myself. Look at chapter 61. Look at chapter 61, and I want you to tell me what's the significance of this couple of verses, okay? Chapter 61, listen as the servant himself speaks. Chapter 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. That's the same language we saw in chapter 42, isn't it? It's the same language we saw in chapter 49. So it's, this is the same person, except now the servant is speaking. Verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now tell me, where have you heard that before? Luke 4, uh, 18, 19. Yes, yes. Jesus, at the, at the a time of his uh, being on earth, goes into the synagogue one, one day, right? And he's chosen to be the reader. And the attendant hands him a scroll. And what scroll is it? It's the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And it just so happened, (laughs) it just so happened that the reading for the day was Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. And can you you imagine a better coming together of a story 
not some fake fictional story, but real history in God's kind providence, the redemption story that God would ordain that the very servant that was promised from long ago, way back in Genesis 12, that we read about him in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 52 and 53 and Isaiah 61, that the very servant who was prophesied of old would be the guy to walk into the synagogue on that day that he hands him the scroll, the scroll opens to chapter 61, Jesus himself reads this passage, closes the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, everyone in the synagogue is silent waiting, and Jesus says this, I want you to know, today in your hearing, this prophecy is fulfilled. Can you believe that? That the one that was waited for, the, 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 the expected one from generation after generation, hundreds of years, centuries, walks into a synagogue one day in the nation of Israel, reads the prophecy and says, I'm the guy! Can you imagine that? If you were an Israelite sitting in that synagogue and realizing this is the one we've been praying for for centuries. Now you know, now you know the rest of the story, right? Uh, not everybody was happy about that. And, uh, and you know how that goes. This is the part where they, they ran him out of the city and tried to run him off the cliff, right? Um, we'll get to that, we'll get to that another day. But, but for our purposes, we see this unfold in the Bible. And, and again, you know, one of you mentioned this early on. When we're reading the Bible, let it speak for itself. Let it unfold for itself. You shortchange excitement and wonder and interest when you skip to the end of the story prematurely. Don't do that. Yeah, we're thankful that we know the end of the story. We're thankful that we have the old Bible. But, but let it unfold so that when you see moments like this, you put yourself in the sandals of the original authors and say, my Goodness, what a day that must have been that the promised servant gets up and reads the very, this is it, he reads the prophecy that he himself spoke in Isaiah 61. That, that's, it, that makes my brain hurt just thinking about that. But it's awesome in a way that only God could put together. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting excited here. Okay, back, back to the notes. Okay, I'll calm down. So here we go. Okay. Okay, so that's the summary, the servant narrow. So so what that means is when you and I are reading Isaiah, li- listen to this, this will help you. Look at my graphic here. So the reader of Isaiah must determine if Isaiah is using his his wide lens, right? The wide lens, the 24 millimeter uh, that, that looks at the servant as a nation, right? Sometimes that's what he's talking. Or sometimes Isaiah is using his long lens, his zoom lens, Focus on the individual. Now, now my back hurts just looking at this guy here, doesn't he? You know, you imagine walking around. Um, th- that that picture there screams one word: get a monopod, right? You know, do do something to help yourself there. But but that's what you have to do when you're reading Isaiah. You have to recognize sometimes it's the wide-angle lens talking about the the servant as the nation of Israel. Sometimes you have to use your zoom lens and recognize uh, that. Isaiah has has zoomed in, and he's thinking about the servant as an individual. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, 
talk to a photo person near you. Um, I, I, I know uh, Lee's got some pretty good setup. And I know Dave Hubbard's got some pretty good. I don't know anybody in our church that has a lens set up like that. All right. I mean, that looks like, you know, you're looking at planets or galaxies or something. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. All right. Back to the notes. Okay. Look at the next verse. Back to chapter 42 now. Let's go back to chapter 42. Okay, so we've made the point that the servant in verses 1 to 7 in chapter 42 cannot be the nation of Israel, the servant that we read about in chapter 41, because Israel as a nation is just as blind as the rest of the people. Okay, so it must be someone else. Now look at verse 21 now. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with none to say, give them back. Okay, what does that mean? Look at your notes there. God's law is great and glorious in righteousness. When God commissioned Abraham, Right, that that the nation of Israel was going to be a light to the Gentiles, and they were going to be the spokesman to the world for who God was and His laws and His ways. God did not lower the bar of His law so that His people could get over it. Did you notice that God's law is great and glorious in righteousness? God's law was indicative of His very character and nature, which is perfect righteousness. And yet, look at verse 22. This people plundered and despoiled. They're trapped in caves. They're hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey and none to deliver them. And we say, well, why is Israel in captivity? That's what verse 22 is describing. Israel finds themselves in captivity. Why are they in captivity? Answer, God put them there. Why? Because of their sin. Because they did not achieve the righteousness of God based on the law. You need to get this, okay? There is not one way of salvation in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. Sometimes Christians get confused about that. What Isaiah is underscoring here is that the law is great and glorious. It is perfect in righteousness. And the reason that Israel is in captivity is they fell short of the glory of God. They broke God's laws just like everybody else in the world. And God disciplined them and judged them by putting them in captivity. You say, well, what is this verse even doing here? Well, why is it here? It's here to underscore the reality that Israel needs a savior. They need the servant's redemption, right? They, they need the same uh, freedom from blindness that all of the nations need. Okay? So God did that because of their sin. And verse 25, this is really sad. Look at this. Verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Uh, was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? So God put them in judgment. That's, don't ever think, don't ever think that when things happen that look bad or look difficult, that God, that's somehow happening outside of God's providence. We see this here. God says the reason my people are in captivity today is because I put them there. 
and I put them there as an act of judgment because they disobeyed my laws and disobeyed my righteousness, that's why they need the servant, right? The, the servant who comes to redeem them. Look at verse 25. So he poured out on them the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle and set him aflame all around, yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. Isn't that sad? Do you see what he's saying? God put his own people in captivity after warning them generation after generation after generation. He put them in captivity, and Israel is sitting in captivity going, we still don't know why this is happening. They still don't get it. They still don't understand why they're in judgment. Now, now certainly some of them did. We, we know that some of the prophets that prophesied during the exile told the people that. Certainly Daniel figured that out. We think of Daniel's prayer when he's in captivity and he prays on behalf of his people that are sinful. So some people did. But what Isaiah is saying here is as a nation in captivity, Israel was largely ignorant of even why they were in captivity. They are stubborn. And so we say, is there any hope for this people? Now, now before we whip up, before we whip up on the nation of Israel, before we get too judgmental on them, let's remind ourselves that we are the same way, aren't we? We are just as stubborn. We are just as ignorant. We are just as clueless. We hear the law of God. We don't obey it. Uh, we, we, we know the ways of God. We don't walk in those things. And just like the Israelites, many of us grow, grew up with biblical truth and we did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Which is why, whether it's the nation of Israel or whether it's the rest of us as the nations, all of us need help. Right? You agree with that? All of us need help. All of us need a savior. And just at the point in the book, now we've seen this before, right? Just at the point of the book, we go, oh no, what's going to happen? God says, watch this. Watch this. Remember where your hope lies. Look at chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through rivers, they will not overflow. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. When nor will the flame burn you. Why? Verse 3. Here it is. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your, what? What does he say? Your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba as your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life, so do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Bring out the people, listen to this, listen to this. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. 
Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Here it is. And my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand what? That I am he before me. There was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. That is the point. God does it like this. Even his own people are a pathetic failure. Why? Because God is underlining and highlighting and starring and circling and putting exclamation marks behind this point. There is no God except Yahweh. There is no Savior other than he. And he alone is the hope for the people of Israel. And yes, he alone is the hope for all the nations. Why? Because the book of Isaiah, listen very closely, the book of Isaiah is not just about judgment, although it's there, right? It's just not about sin, even though it's there. It's just not about redemption of God's people, although that's true. And it's not even totally about the fact that God alone saves the nations. It's about that. But remember the title of our our study, right? We are looking, all of those themes funnel to this one point, that there is no one like the Lord. There is no God other than he. There is no Savior other than he. There is no one like him, no one who is mighty to save, no one who is mighty to deliver. He alone is God. There is no no one like him, no one his equal, no other, other gods that compete with him. He alone is God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Keith, this sounds familiar. Hasn't the book of Isaiah talked about this before? Yes, because that's the point. And as you read through Isaiah 43, and as you read into the other chapters, I hope you continue to read Isaiah as part of your devotional time. As you read this, you're going to see the same themes over and over and over again. Isaiah keep Isaiah is running in a circle. That's what he's doing. He's prophesying in a circle. He's going around and around the mulberry bush one more time. You say, why is he doing that? He's doing that to underscore the themes that we've seen all throughout our study that there is no one, oops, I'm sorry, hang on, there we go, that there is no one like the Lord, right? That That's the main theme here, there is no one like the Lord. Israel is stubborn and will be judged for sin, right, like the rest of us, and the Lord will deliver and save, and he is going to touch on all those themes, you saw it as I read chapter 43, but remember the takeaway, the takeaway is there is no one like the Lord. He alone is God. So if, if you are struggling with a small God disorder today, if you are unimpressed and if you would be so open and honest with yourself as to say, I admit at times I am even bored with God, my friend, will you please read Isaiah? Will you please put yourself in the sandals of these readers and, and see 
who is this God in light of our sin and in light of our stubbornness? What patience we see, what, what grace and loving kindness and, and, and faithfulness to, to offer redemption and to offer salvation even to a stubborn and rebellious people like Israel and even like us. Okay. There is no one like the Lord. Okay. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, how this book just elevates our view of God. Uh, might it continue to be a source of devotion and meditation that it would increase our love for God and our uh, our idea of him and our thoughts toward him. Uh, what an incredible book just to see this unfold in our midst. We're grateful uh, that we know the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, personally, that we draw near to him in simple faith. And uh, we thank you that as we do, we, we see the greatness of who you are uh, in redemption more clearly than even the people of Israel. Thank you for our time together, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.